Hey, welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. He picked a great Sunday to join us. We're going to look at one of my favorite spots in the whole book of Luke this morning. It's only five verses, but they are packed. So I promise we'll be done by 1.30 or so. Uh, Lord willing, Lord willing, 1.30. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? I'll tell you where we've been. Uh, go ahead and try to find Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, last week, we looked at the story of Jesus calling the first disciples, Peter, James, and John. And we looked at an incredible encounter between Jesus and the apostle Peter. Jesus uh, went out on the water with Peter and his crew to the lake after fishing all night long, toiling, being weary, and Jesus tells them, let down the nets and, and creates such a profound and incredible catch of fish that the nets are breaking and the boats are sinking. And Peter says, Lord, go away from me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, don't worry. Don't fear. From now on, you're going to be uh, catching men. Well, they come back, and what we have this morning is another. Last week was an encounter with a very important individual in the scope of biblical literature, the Apostle Peter. Today, we're going to have another individual encounter between Jesus and a leper. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Uh, like I said, just five verses. Uh, six or five, whatever the number, 12 minus 16 plus four, five verses uh, that are going to give you a story uh, that it's an incredibly powerful story. It's, it's in my opinion, one of the uh, most powerful stories uh, of Jesus encountering someone in all of the gospel literature. When I was growing up, uh, I, I don't know if you're like me, I don't know if you were a cool kid, which I was not, so in that case, you were not like me. Uh, if you were... Um, if you remember, you remember middle school and high school, weren't those terrible years? Once that, that see? Somebody over here said amen. Uh, I remember uh, middle school and high school. I remember social dynamics and feeling uh, the realities of being in or being out based on what you wear, based on the shoes you had, based on the haircut you had, based on whether or not you were an athlete or not, that uh, no matter who you are, I think we all remember trying to sort ourselves based upon certain interests or passions or expectations or experiences. And when I was uh, 15, I moved, I grew up in Southern California, and I moved from Los Angeles, California, which is not a small city, to a small city in northeastern Pennsylvania. It had about 5,000 people. I was a California kid. I had uh, sandals and shorts, and we moved during the blizzard of 93, where there was 39 inches of snow on the ground. And I, arguably, was out of place. Uh, I began, uh, I, was, I grew up, I was homeschooled, and then for two years, in my freshman and sophomore year in, in Los Angeles, California, I went to an all-guys Catholic prep school, and then we moved to the blizzard place, uh, to a town of about 5,000 people, uh, and I stepped into high school, co-ed high school, as a junior. And it was a disorienting experience, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, I stepped into, if you've, anybody from a small town? Raise your hand if you're from a small town. You know that small towns are weird, right? You know that. You know that 
that there are certain ways of doing things, certain cultural ideals, certain expectations, certain places you know. If you're from the, the towns that have three stoplights, you know the Dairy Queen, you know the high school football games, you know all of those experiences. And leaving some of the most formative social realities in my life, middle school and high school, and being dropped into a new one, like I said, was disorienting. And I felt viscerally what it was like to be an outsider, to feel like I don't know my way around this place. I don't know my way around the relationships about the people who are cool and the people who are not. And I was a semi-athlete, so I played sports, and, but I was never really in with the athletes. And I, I remember coming into that high school experience really not knowing who my friends and who the social, kind of like who the individuals were that I was going to connect with. Well, after high school, it was two years of being in high school, then I went to college two years there. I did a couple of internships a couple times in college. And from about my junior year of college going forward, I always had felt this sense of being outside, of not quite fitting in, not quite having the relationships. And if, if you're like me and you've had those moments in life where you can recognize what it feels like to be on the outside, then you're going to appreciate this text here this morning. Where you have felt like, I, I'm not... I'm not welcome here. I don't know how to interact in this situation. I feel like there are lots of experiences that people have around here that I don't have, and it makes me feel not a part. And you, you know this. We see this really all over our culture, really in any line of work that you are in. If you have letters after your name, you gravitate toward people with letters after their name. If you uh, went to a certain college, you gravitate toward people who wear your college colors. If you drive a Jeep, you gravitate toward people who drive Jeeps and you give the whatever the wave is. If you ride in a motorcycle, you know it's this one down here, right? Not too high, not too low, it's down here. If you do CrossFit, you know if you do a burpee in front of somebody who does CrossFit, they have to do one? That's true. That's really true. They have to do one. No matter what it is, we have a way of categorizing ourselves and aligning and just sort of falling into relationships where we identify with one another. We find great familiarity in those things. Do you ever try, if, you're ever, if you ever lead in a church and you, get, get, you try to get people to change seats, it is virtually impossible. You know that. You know you sit in that spot, on that cushion, in that pew, in that chair up there, and you know this is my seat. What are they doing in my seat? They must be new. They must not know that this seat, I've been invested in this seat, in this place. I can't hear at any place else in this whole sanctuary unless I sit in this seat. So we all know what it's like to feel in and to feel out. Amen? We all know that. We've all had those experiences. I, I feel apart and I feel distance. And what you're going to find in this passage here today in these few verses is somebody who comes to Jesus who's on the outside. Somebody who's, who comes to Jesus who doesn't have a way in except for Jesus. Okay? So let's pray and see what God might teach us here through his word. Father, for these few minutes, we ask for great grace and understanding to see things in your word perhaps that we've never seen before. As we consider the story that Luke is weaving for us 
as we consider what we learned last week about learning who Jesus is and at the same time learning who we are, learning how Jesus is powerful and wise and sovereign and strong and how so often we recognize ourselves as sinners. We pray for your grace and your mercy to calm our fears as we come into your presence that we might be uh, transformed into the image of God's dear son, that you would reveal areas in which we, where we are disbelieving of your heart, that the gospel would minister to the areas of our life right now where we feel like outsiders. And would your cleansing touch touch the hearts of men and women in this room here this morning and remind them of your kindness toward them in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, y'all there? Luke 5, verse 12. Say okay if you're there. Okay, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities. Now, if you've been with us through the course of this gospel, you know that Jesus be- comes out into his preaching and teaching ministry like, uh, and he explodes on the scene. He's in the synagogue and his teaching is confronting people. He moves out of the synagogue and begins teaching and healing. And it says that uh, reports about him go out and start to reverberate through Galilee and through uh, Capernaum and through uh, Judea and through Jerusalem that there is now an individual on the scene with incredible miraculous teaching authority and incredible miraculous healing power. And Jesus, at the end of uh, really chapter 4, he pauses after spending his entire day and then into the night healing people by laying his hands on them. He gets up the next morning, goes out to pray, and then tells his disciples, I must go to the other cities as well because I must be about preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of, of God that his preaching ministry compels him to move to the next place. And where last week we saw his preaching ministry overflow the bounds of the religious life in the synagogues, now we find Jesus doing exactly what he said he would do. He now arrives into one of the cities, probably in the northern area from where we found Jesus last week at the lake of, um, of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. He's probably in one of those Galilean towns. And that's where we find him doing the very same thing that he said he would do. Now, in the midst of one of these cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, let me give you some background to leprosy. The leprosy in the Bible is probably not the leprosy that we would call it today. Uh, The leprosy that we know today is called Hansen's disease. It's caused by a a slow-growing bacteria. Uh, And there's lots of, you can read on the CDC about that, lots of stuff on the CDC about leprosy and how it happens and where it results in and and all that. But uh, leprosy is sort of an, an umbrella term in the Old Testament. Really, leprosy is mentioned about 50 times in the Old Testament. And uh, it's, a, it's a categorical term that has to do with skin disease. So it probably summarizes and uh, categorizes lots of different skin diseases, everything from eczema to psoriasis to rashes, ringworms, fungal infections, even probably leprosy itself. But it was a significant reality in the life of Old Testament uh, Israelites. Uh, You find out about it and how to treat it, identify it, well, not really treat it, but really basically how to treat it, uh, not treat it, what do I keep saying that for? Identify it, how to identify it in Leviticus 13 and Leviticus 14. So we don't need to turn there. You can um, read that, read about skin rashes on your own later on today at lunch uh, or whenever you want to do that. Uh, But leprosy, once identified in in Leviticus chapter 13, uh, would declare an individual unclean. Now, unclean 
doesn't necessarily mean sin. Uncleanness in the ritual and ceremonial world of ancient Israel had to do with whether or not you were able to be a part of the religious and social life of the nation. And uncleanness could happen for a variety of reasons. Women after childbirth would be unclean. If you buried a relative, you could be unclean. If you came in contact with a dead animal or a, a dead body or just in the natural, if you had uh, mildew in your clothes or mold in your home, that you could be considered unclean. And there were various treatments or basically ceremonial practices that you would engage in to be able to be brought back into fellowship, relationship, religious, social, ceremonial life within the nation. So some would take something as simply, uh, as simple as a bath. And then by the end of the day, you wait till the sun to go down and you're considered clean again. But there were all of these rules and rituals that were in place to determine whether or not there was an individual who was clean or unclean. Now, just to say it had nothing to do with sin didn't mean it wasn't serious. In Leviticus 15, God says to Moses, if an individual who is unclean approaches the tabernacle, he could die. So it was taken seriously in the life of the nation. But when you find these individuals in the Old Testament, you get a sense that leprosy is an incredibly serious thing. There are two kind of just significant ones. As I said, there's lots of leprosy mentioned in the Old Testament about 50 different times. But I want to just draw your mind's eye to a couple in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's an individual who's a general, who's a Syrian general, one of the enemies of Israel, and his name is Naaman. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, it tells you that he has leprosy. And there's a servant girl who tells him he's got to go and get his leprosy clear, uh, cleansed or his leprosy healed by a prophet who's in Israel. And this general goes through the normative political and military channels and makes his way to the king of Israel and says, hey, here I am, cleanse my leprosy. Here's what the king of Israel says. He says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? That the king himself recognized this individual is in such a bad way that nobody can help him but God. There's another spot in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, Aaron and, Mo, uh, Aaron and Miriam confront Moses about his leadership and the fact that he took a wife who wasn't of the Israelites. And they critique him. But Moses uh, doesn't stand up for himself. God says, y'all come to the temple, come to the, uh, tent, the, what's it called? The tent of meeting. You come to the tent of meeting. We're going to talk. And he gives Miriam leprosy. And Aaron cries out, and he says this, Lord, let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. When it came to leprosy, the rabbis who would write at this time would say, leprosy is harder to heal than it is to raise a man from the dead. So when individuals were categorized as unclean and categorized as lepers. It was a devastating pronouncement. Here's what Leviticus 13 says about the individual who has leprosy, how he must interact with the nation. Le uh, Leviticus 13, 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let, their hair, and let the hair of his head hang loose. 
He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, no doubt there were certain medical ramifications for an individual who has leprosy. If leprosy was any kind of bacterial or fungal issue, it was contagious. It could contaminate other people if they came in contact with the leper. And the, ru- the rule for examining a leper was this individual would come to the priest and the priest would look at him and examine him and wait and then wait a week and come back and check him to see whether or not this skin disease was healing on his own. And if it wasn't, he'd wait a week and he'd come back and he'd check him. And if it wasn't healing or it was getting worse, the priest would make a declaration that this individual has leprosy, this individual is unclean, and now this individual's relationship to the entire community is now changed. He's no longer welcome. He's an outsider. He can no longer interact. He's outside the camp. He can no longer be with his family. He lives alone. So there were medical ramifications. There were clearly social ramifications, that there's no way back into the people I work with. There's no way back into my family. There's no way back to be with my friends, that my social context was immediately and irreversibly changed because now I could only interact and communicate with people who had leprosy like I did. So medical ramifications, social ramifications, and no doubt psychological ramifications to no longer to be able to feel somebody's touch, to now lose the most significant relationships in this individual's life, and to now have to bear the constant weight of crying out to people as you see them that you are unclean. Now, if, you have a, if you're not using an ESV Bible, if you have a different Bible, you may have a Bible that includes a word in this verse, verse 12, that is between cities and there came. And it's the word behold. Do you have a Bible that says behold? Who has a Bible that says behold? You got that? That's in the Greek. The ESV, for some reason, leaves it out. Nobody asked me uh, when they left it out. But uh, it's there for a reason. It's there so that you might have a sense of shock that you find this individual in the city, right? You should be surprised. In fact, Luke surprises us. Luke, the medical doctor, writes that Jesus is in the city, but now there's an individual in the city who shouldn't be in the city. There should be an individual who is outside the city, outside the relationships, living alone, crying out unclean. He's not allowed in the city. But Luke tells us, behold, pay attention. Look that this individual has made his way to Jesus. So right from the beginning, we're surprised. Right from the beginning, there's a contrast that the individual is here who shouldn't be here. There's an outsider who's with the insiders. And this outsider shouldn't be with the insiders. So there's no illusion with leprosy. By the time this individual has been declared as a leper, everybody knows. Word goes out. His family knows. His social circles know. His workplace knows. Everybody knows that he's an outsider. Everybody knows that he's not welcome here anymore. But he finds his way to Jesus. And what I want you to see about this individual is what he believes about Jesus. It's fascinating 
What we know about Jesus up to this point in Luke is that Jesus has been healing, right? In fact, he's been healing individuals. Remember what we talked about at the end of Luke chapter 4, that everybody who knew somebody who was sick brought them to Jesus. So Jesus is now the epicenter, and the tremors go out throughout the community of those who know anybody who might be sick. They bring them to Jesus, he lays hands on them, and they're made well. Well, imagine how that news hits the leper community. And here comes this leper. Let me just make a side point here that is, is kind of just an interesting one. The leper is about to ask Jesus a question, but do you notice how the, what the leper had to do to make his way to Jesus? Do you know how many stares and uh, misunderstandings and you shouldn't be here comments were made for an individual like a leper to make his way all the way into the city? Let me ask you, just, we'll keep going here in a minute. How willing are you to take your problems to Jesus? How serious do you believe your situation to be that you would take those difficulties in your life that you know are a reality, that you know you can't escape? How willing are you? What are you willing to do to bring them to Jesus? I think that's a great personal reflection question. Because this individual, at this point in the story, has overcome profound social embarrassment, profound social cost to be able to make his way into a city to greet Jesus. Now, let's watch his theology. Let's see what this individual believes about Jesus. We learned some things about Jesus through Peter's encounter, right? We learned who Jesus was and at the same time who Peter was. And we're going to find something similar here in the leper. Look at the remainder of verse 12. When he uh, saw Jesus, there's three real quick verbs that characterize this individual. One is when he sees Jesus. Now imagine once he lays eyes on Jesus. Imagine the stories that have been going out. We already know from Luke in multiple places in chapter 4 that the stories grow and grow and grow and grow. And what this leper has in his ears is the rumor and the promise and the hope that this individual can fix the problems in my life. That this individual can handle this problem that I have. So when he sees Jesus... He falls on his face. Now that sounds a lot like what Peter did in the boat, doesn't it? Peter fell on Jesus' knees saying, Lord, depart from me, I am a sinner. So in the similar way, this leper understands at least something about Jesus that would cause him in desperation and reckless humility and self-abasement to throw himself on his face in the presence of Jesus. And once he has done that, you see what the word is? What's he do? He speaks softly. He mumbles. No, he begs. The word when we, this word used in the New Testament when it refers to God is often the word that is used to pray. That he sees him, he falls down on his feet, and he begs Jesus. Now, what does the leper call Jesus? Look at the text. Lord. Now, that, that's important. That's interesting because we, met, we talked about that last week. Remember that? Remember Peter starts with, Master, we've toiled all night. 
it's worn me out. We've caught nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. They let down the nets. The nets are breaking. The boats are sinking. Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Lord, he's no longer master. He's now Lord. But now the leper jumps over that fact that he is master. It has nothing to do with Jesus being master. It has, a, it has the, to do with what the leper believes about who Jesus is. And all through Luke's story, all through his gospel, we're being told that Jesus is not just a man, that he is the Lord. He's not just a human, he is God's divine appointed son and Messiah. And this leper throws himself down, begs him and says, Lord, now watch this, this is incredible. Lord. Now, what did we learn? Let me pause, hold on, before we get to it, you can read it on your own just for a minute. What did we learn about Peter calling Jesus Lord? You remember that? Remember we were here last week? We were all here. Wasn't it great? See, we learned in the beginning of Luke chapter 5 is that Peter called Jesus Lord after Jesus had done something that only God can do. He did something where he commanded the very fish of the ocean to jump into the nets and to be drawn into the boats. He had total sovereign power, control, and command. And we leave that encounter and we're overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus has this amount of power. That when he speaks, creation itself responds. But that truth in Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11, isn't the truth that this leper necessarily struggles with. This leper has a different question for Jesus. And no doubt Jesus causing the fish to come into the nets and the, the nets to come into the boat and the boats to sink causes Peter great angst and great revelation in his life that he recognizes he is a sinner. That doesn't seem to be the issue here for the leper. Look at the leper's question. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. See, God's power isn't really a hard thing for any of us to understand, is it? We all, no matter who you are, if you have any kind of background spiritually and you believe at all in any kind of theism, you have a perspective that God is God and you are not, right? God, if God, if God is, then he's stronger than me, amen? Right, okay? We can at least admit that if God is up there somewhere that God is stronger than I am and he has a certain amount of power, it's probably more than me. I'm only here 70 to 80 years, but God, if he's got power and he's outside of the creation that he has made, then he's stronger than me. So we can at least admit that this guy's theology is strong when it comes to a God of power. But this individual has a question. This individual struggles not so much with God's power, but with God's willingness. So why is this the question? I mean, just imagine yourself in the leper's shoes. If every single touch, if every single human encounter, if every single social dynamic required you to be constantly shouting out unclean, constantly living alone, in every quarter of your life, you had no hope of connection with anybody. So much so that you would doubt their willingness at all to have anything to do with you. Because you know what leprosy has cost you. You know how it characterizes your skin and your flesh and is a testimony of the fact that you are not welcome. 
And imagine experience after experience after experience with humans who say, I want nothing to do with you. You're going to contaminate me. You're going to get me sick. You stay over there. You shout unclean. You can't be with us. And imagine how much that shapes your psyche in the ways that you respond and react to other people so that even when this individual is in the presence of Jesus, he can admit God is strong. He can admit God is mighty. He can confess that God can do incredible things. But I don't know if he wants to heal me. Isn't that devastating? Can't you feel that the pain and the hopelessness in that question? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. See, his theology is that God is strong, but that God doesn't draw near all that much. God doesn't get, he doesn't get his hands dirty. He certainly wouldn't want to have anything to do with this situation in my life. And here comes this individual willing to come to Jesus, willing to overcome profound social embarrassment and bear the cost of being looked at and criticized and embarrassed and ashamed to come into the presence of God and go, I don't, I'm here, I'm willing, and if you're willing, you can change this. Verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, remember chapter 4 when Jesus laid his hands on all of them, right? He laid his hands on every single one so that they would know that the power that came from Christ would heal those with fevers and any kind of various diseases. But leprosy ain't a fever. Leprosy is different than a cold. Leprosy is a disease with such profound medical, social, psychological ramifications that it, it, it cripples their entire life. They're viewed, some commentators said that they, these individuals would be viewed as the living dead. And Jesus does something that he doesn't have to do. We all know Jesus can heal with a word, right? But Jesus does something not just to say, I will be clean. He does something to stretch out his hand and lay his hand on the individual who is beset with leprosy. So that the leprosy, now that has compromised his ability to relate to anybody and to everyone, is overcome by the fact that Jesus is willing to step into his life to cross the barrier of uncleanness, cross the barrier of defilement, to reach out and to touch this individual and to demonstrate not only that he says the words, I am willing, but he demonstrates, I am willing, be clean. I love what Luke says, how fast does the leprosy go? As fast as the demons leave, boom, gone. As fast as the fever left, boom, gone. And the disease that had contaminated everything and everyone that it had touched, it contaminated his very flesh and the presence of Jesus flees. And it's fascinating 
that the cleanliness of Jesus is more contagious than the defilement of leprosy. Isn't that good? Isn't that fascinating? Is that the cleanliness of Christ has more to say over this individual's life that has only been characterized by abandonment and ostracism. The cleanliness of Christ now has more to say over this individual's life than any recent past medical history. And that now his psychological, his mental, his religious, his medical problems are boom, gone. And Jesus is not defiled. Where's the leprosy go? That Jesus himself reaches out to touch this individual and the cleanliness of Jesus impacts the defilement of the leper and, the, and there's, no clean, there's no defilement anywhere. There's no leprosy anywhere. It's not on Jesus. He didn't get contaminated. The guy didn't get contaminated. He doesn't still have it. It's totally and completely eradicated and gone. Immediately, the leprosy leaves him. Now, that's pretty good, isn't it? Don't you want to just, that's it. Let's go home. But what's so interesting to me, and I, as I got, I've, I've taught this text probably three or four times. And I had never had seen this until I got to this point in this week as I studied this text. See, it's very easy for us to, to look at this passage and, and kind of put ourselves in the middle of it. And to go, how profound it is that the power of Jesus has the ability to bring the ostracized and bring them near. Isn't that incredible? That he can take the outcast and make them apart again. He can take the outsider and bring them in. He can take the defiled one and he can make them clean. But what's fascinating about this text, and really it's the tension in the passage, Jesus has no problem with uh, leprosy, right? He re- like, like, leprosy isn't really that big a deal to Jesus. He reaches out his, his hand he says, I will, and it's done. The tension in the passage is verse 14. And you may have read, read right by it in the past, but I want to show this to you here because I think it's stunning for how we understand how this passage works. Look at verse 14. He charged him to tell no one, which is really weird. We know from Mark that this guy doesn't obey this, but just for a minute, imagine if he obeyed. Jesus says, you're clean. And every single relationship in his life that has been broken by the reality of leprosy is now healed and restored and he can go back into normal life. But Jesus says, shh, don't say anything. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Well, why would Jesus command silence? And why would Luke, who writes to, to the Gentiles who don't know anything about the Old Testament purity laws, take time to give us verse 14? Who cares? The guy's back. He's healed. Send him home. And Jesus, existing in the Old Testament Mosaic law system, heals the guy and then says, now go and do everything that the law commanded you to do. Now, Leviticus 13 is how you identify leprosy. But Leviticus 14 is what you do after you're cleansed. Leviticus 14 tells you you got to take two pigeons, two birds. One of them you got to kill. You got to take the blood, put them on the other one, let the bloody bird go, take a sacrifice, wait seven days, shave all the hair on your body, stand outside your tent. You got to wait another seven days. You got to shave your whole body again, and then you're back in. 
And Jesus says, make sure that you go to the temple and you go back to the priests and you tell them what happened. And then you offer the offering that you're supposed to offer because Moses said, this is what you do. So Jesus, in the midst of this Old Testament Mosaic law economy, doesn't transcend the law to get rid of it. Jesus says, no, no, no. Now that you're healed, we're going to obey the law right down to the letter. Well, why? Who cares? At least we know that Jesus is a faithful Jew. He knows that God's word matters. But look at what he says. Go and show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded. Why? Here's the why. For a proof to them. Literally for a witness to them. So here's this guy who's cleansed from his leprosy. And he now has to go and he has to exercise what uh, the commands of Leviticus 14 as he goes through the ritual process where the priest comes out and says, okay, your leprosy's gone. Let's go through the whole process of what you need to, be, need to do to be brought back into the community of faith. And Jesus says, when you go, make sure you do this so that it would be a proof to them. Later on, we'll see this in Jesus' ministry over in Luke chapter 7, but in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is in prison. And John is having a real hard time with hearing all the things that are happening and, the, and dealing with the fact that he, as a faithful Jew, someone who's fulfilled his calling, is now in prison. And he sends disciples to go talk to Jesus. And they, the disciples show up to talk to Jesus and they go, hey, John's in prison and John wants to know, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've put our hope in? Are you the one who really is the one? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. What's he saying? That this is my ability to heal leprosy is a testimony that I am the one. I am the Messiah. Now imagine the leper in Old Testament times. The leper would show up. I think I'm a leper. And the priest goes, all right, wait there. I'll be out in a minute. And he comes out and he looks at it. And he makes them go through all the steps. And the leper, now with leprosy breaking out all over their skin or whatever it was, says, okay, this is bad. Can you tell me it's bad? And the priest would come out and the testimony on the body of the individual would say, I am unclean. And the priest would come out. And if you don't know anything about the priests and what they would do, the priests couldn't like, they couldn't say like, hey, rub some dirt on it or try some hydrocortisone or, you know, what's the commercial with Cindy Lauper? The um, Cosentix. Take some Cosentix. What is it? Psoriasis. That's what we got now. Uh, whatever it is. They, they had no healing property whatsoever. They couldn't do anything. All they would do is go, yep, you got it. And that's their whole deal. And then they have to abide by the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law, every single time the leper would come to get inspected and the priest would look and he would go, yep, you've got it. You're outside. Let's try again next month. Yep, you've got it. You're outside. You can't come back because the law says so. And here's Jesus, who heals him and sends him to the priest. 
so that this individual would confess to the priest that there is a guy who can make me clean. There's a guy who can take leprosy away. Now, if you don't know this, there's Leviticus 13 and there's Leviticus 14. Leviticus 13, here's how you have leprosy. These are the problems. Leviticus 14, here's when leprosy goes away and what you're supposed to do. But there's no chapter in between. There's no Leviticus 13 and a half. And there's this gaping hole when you read Leviticus that should make you ask between the close of 13 and the opening of 14, who makes me clean? Who can take it away? I know what to do if it's gone. I know what to do if I have it, but how do I get rid of it? See, the thing about leprosy is it's clear you have a problem. Are you clear? Now, it's not a hard, spiritual, clever. It's not a clear, difficult leap to understand that we all have a problem, right? We all have a problem that shows up in our life that characterizes every single relationship I have, that characterizes every single thought that I think, that characterizes every single perspective that I have, that taints every single conversation that I've ever had and ever will have, that consistently, when I'm in relationship with people, I only prove over time more and more and more and more and more that I have sin. I have sin that I can't get rid of. I have beliefs that are not right. I have lusts of the flesh that I can't contain and I can't get rid of and they break out in my life and they prove again over and over and over again that I am a sinner. I doubt like the leper whether or not Jesus is willing. And after so many times of being a sinner, I know in this room there are some of you who have had this experience where you say, I've done it again. I know he's strong, but I don't know if he's willing. I've disbelieved again. I've fallen again. It's the problem that won't go away. And I know he's strong, but I don't know if he's willing. I don't know if he draws near. I know I ought to. I know I should be different. I know I should try harder. I know I should believe different, but I don't know if he cares. And when Jesus reaches out his hand and then says to the man, go and show yourself to the priest, he shows us something. Because Jesus doesn't just come to heal social problems. He doesn't just come to heal medical problems. He doesn't just come to heal psychological issues. When Jesus ties this healing to the law of God, he says, I am here to fix your problem with God that you can't draw near. You're an outsider. You can't come in. You have sin and defilement that will not allow you to come into his presence. And until you are clean because of what I do, you will never be allowed in. So when Jesus ties his ministry to the law, what he's saying is that the law exposes us. The law reveals us. And until we are touched by Christ, until we are healed by Christ, until we are cleansed by Christ, we have no hope of a relationship with God. But now this individual has his family life reversed. He has his relational lives reversed. He has his medical life reversed. He has his mental life reversed. He has his psychological life reversed. He has his spiritual life reversed. And now he's back. Now the outsider has been brought in. 
And the testimony to that is the thankfulness of the, of the leper who goes and is now no longer a leper. But what I want you to see in these final two verses is how Jesus does it. How does Jesus take outsiders and bring them in? Look at verse 15. Now even more the reporter about him went abroad. I bet. And the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. How does this paragraph start? Jesus in the city. Lots of people. How did chapter 5 start? Jesus being pressed in upon the crowd who were longing to hear his teaching. But by the end of this paragraph, Jesus is no longer on the inside. Jesus is on the outside. Jesus has traded places with the leper. Jesus said, I will be clean. Go and step back into the religious life of the nation. But now Jesus is outside. What is Jesus doing outside? Well, the same thing he's been doing since chapter 4. Jesus, again, is praying. Because you can imagine the surge of anticipation, the surge of hopefulness that surrounds Jesus' ministry as he cleanses a leper. And again, Jesus withdraws. And as Jesus is on the outside and the leper is on the inside, Jesus again is in face-to-face -face communion with his heavenly Father. Reminding himself, I have a purpose here as to why I've come. And the purpose is not just to be popular. The purpose is not just to be a physical healer. The purpose is to take outsiders and bring them in to a relationship with God. The purpose of why I've come is to save sinners. Sinners who are defiled. Sinners who are unclean. Sinners who are disbelieving. Sinners who have no hope of coming back into relationship with God because their sin taints every part of their life. It taints how they think and what they believe and who they talk to and the relationships they have. It taints their parenting. It taints their job. It taints their relationships. It taints everything. It taints how they view themselves. And here's Jesus alone, desolate, on the outside. And that's really the, the foundation of the gospel message, isn't it? Hebrew says that Jesus was crucified outside the camp. That Jesus, as he moves through his life and his ministry, is rejected by his family. He's rejected by his nation. He's rejected by his, uh, one of his very own disciples. He's abandoned by those who are closest to him. And then he goes to the cross and he loses the insider status. He loses the affection of the most dear and intimate relationship he has, the love of his heavenly father. And he does it so that he might bring you in. He does it that he might bring sinners like me in. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What happened? 
we traded places. He got the punishment for my sins. I got his righteousness, his purity, his cleanliness. I was declared, declared just. I was declared righteous. He was declared a defiled sinner worthy of the wrath of God. So if you come in to the church or you come into an encounter this week, the fact that Jesus takes outsiders and, bring them in, and brings them inside should shape the way Christians view everybody, shouldn't it? So that in every social situation, we have the greatest news in the world that God welcomes outsiders and makes them insiders, right? So all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That you became a part of his family because of what Jesus did for you. Isn't that good news? So if you're in that moment in your life where you're feeling the stain of sin, you're feeling ashamed and you're wondering, would he enter into this problem? Would he lay his hands on this struggle, this sin, this thing that defiles me? Can I encourage you that his word to you is I will be clean. Father, we recognize what a powerful moment this is in the life of Jesus' ministry. We look at this and we rejoice and we consider the ways in which we have felt like outsiders. And Father, thanks for the good news that in Jesus' name, you welcome in those who have been defiled by sin, those who have made wrong choices, those who have felt the stain of sin as men and as women in our relationships with one another and our relationships with our kids and our relationship with you where we confess we don't bring anything to the table but hope that you are kind and merciful to sinners like us. And what great news it is that you are. So, Father, as we consider these things in our own relationship with you, even this morning, would you restore the areas of our lives that are characterized by unbelief in your kindness and your tenderness toward us? And would we be washed again in the deepest places of our hearts in the truth that Jesus loves us and Jesus forgives sinners like us? It's in his name we pray. Amen.